Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps tool chain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetics has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetics provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetics.com forward slash security weekly. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Welcome back, everyone. This is the application security news for the week of October 28th. Still with us, Johnny Christmas. Got it right this time. And of course, uh, the illustrious co-host, Paul Asadorian. Guys, where do you want to get started this week? There's uh, plenty of news on there. Hmm. Well, I had to write show notes up. Huh? Yeah, this is it. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Microtik routers. I mentioned that earlier uh, in the news last week, I uh, think. So, so basically, uh, what ended up happening with these MicroTik routers, and pulling up my notes now as well. Um, so, they ended up having a remote code execution vulnerability that was disclosed at DerbyCon eight, I believe, or it was talked about at DerbyCon eight uh, a few weeks ago. Um, basically, what it ended up being was a Tenable researcher found that CVE twenty eighteen one four eight four seven allowed unauthenticated remote code execution. Um, for a flaw that had previously been uh, disclosed or talked about, but uh, was was basically seen as you know not remotely exploitable, and so they didn't really deal with it until, of course, they found out. Hey, guess what? It is, and now you're screwed. Um, so yeah, that's to, to kick things off. I don't know, Johnny. Do you have any thoughts on this? Have you have you done any reading on this in uh, your explorations lately? Uh, no, not on this one in particular. Um, but then you can fill me in. Here's my main question: Whenever I I, I see these router exploits. Can I exploit it from the WAN interface? Can I get an IP and then run an exploit against this to do an RCE? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. The answer, That's answer in this case is yeah. <laughs> the answer is almost always no when you see a lot of these router vulnerabilities come out is it already requires uh, you to be on the LAN via some other means. And sometimes like that is as easy as just guessing. Owning your Android phone and then attacking your internal yeah. router. Right? Or guessing a crappy you know, router password like everyone <clears throat> sure. has. Um, putting an exclamation point on the end of your password is not security no. enhancement. No. And I see that so much. Um, yeah, but any any owned device then connected to the LAN, right. uh, absolutely that can be exploited. Um, but to have something where now uh, I'm back to the days of 
running sub seven uh, and scanning <laughs> all the Comcast IPs for you know what's listening on this port and just running that exploit and seeing what goes. Uh, that's insane. That's that's a remote ownage of people's homes. I like the the vigilante aspect. Like someone was out there in in another related story that someone was out there just exploiting this flaw and just patching it for for everyone. Yeah, so that's um, that's not a new mentality. We were seeing no. that going on. Um, I want to say most famously with the Mirai botnet. Even uh, before that, uh, the, <coughs> li the line worm, the line worm. Yeah, absolutely, the line worm. And and so that's uh, some of these people remain silent on it. There's some people like Chris Roberts, Psy Dragon, who. Uh, very loudly boasts about his activities in those realms, um, and sometimes you know it's uh, there's nice guys just patching things, and mm -hmm. sometimes there's not so nice guys bricking them, uh, but bricking them for the greater good. You know the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Sure, as they say, or their own personal gain. Like was it the Adobe Flash exploits that were like, hey, we've got an update. It's a fake update, but it's a real update. It actually patches your stuff but only after it implants a backdoor for crypto mining on your system then it patches your stuff so no one else can get in yeah and it's that's that, just that was fun to that talk was about. a weird one i had to read that one more than once mm -hmm. to make sure that i definitely understood that that's the weird roundabout kind of figure six thing that was going on in that scenario it's like yes it does in fact update your flash to a patched version yep. And as payment for their service, they're asking that you mine some cryptocurrency. Now, what's interesting is that can, actually, that can actually get you caught, right? Because okay. what if yeah. I see things are patched, but I haven't rolled out the patch yet? Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? So there was a, a Cray supercomputer once upon a time in a, a life long ago that the way the attackers were discovered was... Was that your first computer? Is that no, what you're it was saying? not. I wish. <laughs> Uh, they were super. I mean, it doubles as like a bench in your entryway, yeah, right? Humble it's, bragging. Oh, it was an old cray. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so they had broken. They were doing all kinds of stuff, but patching things to make sure that no one else got in. And it was the patching of things that got them caught, not the other behavior. Which is interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Very so interesting. What did patching also like, especially in this case? I, I know that certain routers don't have very, especially these routers, probably Soho routers, don't have very good logging. But wouldn't that at least give some indication as to who was doing the patching based on the remote authentication to the device? Like you'd think. Well, well that's if it's a backdoor or not, right? And it's unauthenticated. Yeah. True. So, there. Um, so, and, and so it depends on their logging. And generally, what I've found is the cheaper the router. Uh, not to disparage MicroTik too much, but the cheaper the router, the less logging is going on in there. Mm. Uh, just because logging incurs, you know, a huge resource hit. Uh, you need storage. Yeah, you true. know, how often do the logs roll? If they're rolling every four hours, just, mm -hmm. you know, it's a low flash memory. You might, you know, there might be nothing there. Uh, and yeah, and that's a bit, is a big ordeal with forensics on home, you know, Soho routers is they just don't have those advanced feature, features that forensics needs. And it, it's interesting, though, especially with the kind of open router um, initiative, DDWRT is one that always comes to mind is like, yeah. if you're using a, an old router um, and you want to try and keep the longevity of it a little bit, and maybe even depending on the interfaces on the device, you know, put your logs off to an external hard drive, which is probably super cheap these days compared to, you know, way back when. If your device um, has the resources to even handle log offloading like that, like that, you, you're, you're running into just CPU cycle problems even in some of these. But yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Sure. And then there's, you know, who's doing that? You might. We might. Right. But the average MicroTik router owner? No, absolutely not. Well, and you wonder how much choice, and if they did have a choice, was it based on the recommendation? So, like, bandwidth has grown significantly over the past 10 years, so much so that if you throw a crappy router, you're in, it's going to run crappy. 
and then be like, oh, I'm just going to run what's from the provider rather than buy something off the shelf. Which Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if it necessarily impacts the security because in either case, you could be getting something pretty crappy. Uh, I have at least seen routers now coming out, even on the cheap end, that are doing auto updating. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some vendors that, you know, and Soho vendors that are being pretty good about providing patches uh, yeah. because a lot of them are just running the paid version of DDWRT. Right. Uh, and so whenever that has a patch come out, it's real easy for the vendor to just quickly QA it and fire it out. Uh, and so that's really cool. That's, you know, Asus is one of them that comes to mind that runs DDWRT. And just I remember that announcement back yeah, then. Yeah, I've, I've come across a few, like several year old Soho Asus routers that are still receiving updates. I'm like, that's pretty cool. That's definitely awesome, and and it's something that you don't see very often. Um, Hopefully, it of like, will be soon. I know, right? <laughs> um, speaking of uh, of default stuff, um, did you guys check out the ZDNet article? Uh, so it's under the "If you build it, they will come" story number one on how China has been hijacking uh, internet backbones uh, or the internet backbone from Western countries. Uh, is so this news. I think this has always been going on, or at least people have been trying. Right? Yeah, well, let me. It's BGP hijacking, but mm. the thing is, is this story actually does a little bit of investigative research. So, basically, what they found, and, and this is actually out of the U.S. Naval War College and Tel Aviv University, is a joint white paper that was released. And so, dating back to North America in the early 2000s, uh, a point of presence or POP data uh, are data centers that do nothing more than just reroute traffic. Um, especially for, you know, between smaller networks. So maybe between Comcast and Verizon, for example. Yeah, small networks um, like Comcast and Verizon. <laughs> I mean, well, like local data centers, <laughs> yeah. right? So like here in the Northeast, maybe between like uh, Providence and Boston, right? Like something like that. Um, so what they found, though, was there's, uh, I think it was eight in total. I have to go back and look at the, the notes here. But there are uh, several of these in the U.S. and two in Canada that are owned by China Telecom. And so right around the time that the U.S. signed that agreement uh, with China under President Obama to effectively stop all hacking activities by the Chinese military to steal intellectual property secrets uh, from U.S. industry and pass it back into Chinese industry, um, they saw this basically start to just fire up uh, quite a bit. Um, I don't know if you, did you guys catch anything from this article that, that stood out to you? There's a number of things that I saw, but I wanted to make sure you guys you know had a chance to chime in. I did not see that. <laughs> uh, apparently, we don't think it's interesting enough to comment on. Um, I, I think we're running into... John is going to comment on it. We're running into this problem of um, just complacency. Because, like you said, we've been seeing this forever. This mm. has been a known thing that, you know, when we see it happen one more time, Paul and I just go, well, yeah, of course, that's what's happening. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, the complacency, it's pseudo-complacency in that, you know, hopefully we also both operate under this impression that it's going on and so we watch what we're doing um we have always on vpns you know taking care of a lot of this uh but as far as the the general public goes maybe it doesn't apply to them as well but we're talking about uh you know theft the ip theft intellectual property theft and this is this is a big thing um and it's especially a big thing in uh the industrial sectors the sectors that generate our gdp revenue um the companies that make things and invent new things. Uh, like the, the US government just this year, just very recently, a couple of months ago, named manufacturing to now be critical infrastructure. Uh, it's crazy to me that it wasn't before, uh, but that means now we have to have you know regulatory systems put in place to make sure that 
manufacturing companies are going through proper security auditing. Uh, and so uh, I was just speaking at a conference uh, in Chicago on that. Uh, UI Labs is being named the National Center for uh, critical for uh, you know, cybersecurity manufacturing. Uh, and I was looking through what all of these manufacturers do as far as cybersecurity goes, and it's effectively nothing. Um, you're worried about China, you know, stealing IP via potentially unencrypted or maybe even decrypting traffic somehow via, you know, backbones. Um, that's so late in the communications pipeline that getting anything out of there is, uh, you have a small, way smaller of a chance, whereas just simply infecting uh, manufacturing company computers with rats is so much easier because they're so susceptible because nobody thinks of their equipment as IT equipment. They don't think of it as being important. Um, and these are, you, you know, you go down these manufacturing lines and they're all running unpatched Windows machines from forever ago. Uh, and these companies have wide open SMB shares on their networks that are hosting what even the people who put the files on the SMB shares don't realize is confidential IP. Uh, and so it's super easy to just get into these manufacturing centers and start dumping stuff left and right and figuring out what you got later versus, uh, you know, getting all hot and bothered about, you know, they're listening in on our BGP uh, runs. Like, that's, that's crazy, and they shouldn't be. Um, and I'm not saying that they can't gain anything from doing such things. Uh, I'm just saying that they have so many more effective, easier ways of stealing our IP, if that's, if that's the topic of conversation here, that if we're going to get uppity about something, we need to get uppity about it in the right place to the right people and raise awareness where it needs to be raised. You know, the people who manage those BZ, BGP routes, they already know. They're aware of the like, security implications of their job and what they're doing. Uh, the people who are actually working in these manufacturing centers that are working with this intellectual property, you know, your CAD designs, uh, your blueprints, things like that, uh, you know, your, your, your trademark, your registered stuff, um, they don't know security. They know carving equipment out of a block of aluminum in a CNC machine. They've never been trained in security. And the firmware they get for these CNC machines is coming straight out of China. Uh, and there's, you know, who's, who's checking that firmware? It's almost nobody. The amount of research being done on, you know, the industrial side for this sort of equipment is minuscule globally. Uh, and I've, I've, I've seen this firmware. It's terrible. It's easily reversed and backdoored in many, many cases. It's rarely encrypted. Um, the, when you go to, you know, let, let's say you've got, you know, a $60 million CNC machine to get a firmware update for this thing, those server firmware updates, you, you go to the sketchiest looking websites you've ever seen in your life and it's impossible to figure out if you're getting the right one and half the time you don't, you got to try six times or you brick your $60 million machine. That sucks. Um, and so like you can't even use the common sense of like, does this site look sketchy? Maybe you don't download anything. That's the right site. Uh, and so the, just the whole, everything that we teach users on the IT side about what to look for security-wise just doesn't apply in the industrial space. Um, and that's, that's what's killing us. And it's not like I'm, I'm giving away the farm here. China knows that. Um, everyone knows that. And it's, it, of course, it's not just China. Um, there's far more dangerous, you know, more active threat actors out there than China. Uh, so it's kind of funny that we keep just referencing China because I feel like that draws attention away from the real threats. 
Well, let's mention, of course, like uh, we could we could probably go into the rabbit hole of the electorate and all of that other goodness. I'm not going to touch yeah, that. Yeah, let's that get political. Third, third round. Yeah, uh, not going to touch that third round now. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I thought was interesting uh, about this article was that it's it's the U.S. War College and Tel Aviv University that are coming right out and just calling them out. Right, like most of the time, this sort of thing um, is kind of done either through like you know news media outlets or it's done through. Um, kind of back channels and they never really call out specific companies like China Telecom, for example, directly. Right. Um, nor nor do they actually like have it come from such sources as the US Naval War College or Tel Aviv University, right? Like that's basically like saying US Army intelligence and uh I forget what they call the intelligence unit in Israel. But Yeah, and, and a lot of times you see, especially when it's just the media calling it out, um, or, you know, smaller companies or just less advanced companies, you see them blaming China and you go, well, it's China IPs. Yeah. Those are really easy to get your hands on. Sure. Whereas when you're dealing like straight up with China Telecom and BGP routes, it's a, it's harder to plausibly deny that it's China in this case. Uh, and so at least, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about this being true. It It's likely true and that gives me mixed feelings is what I'm I saying. have mixed feelings about surveys and survey data. <laughs> when, when I knew we, you were going to touch yeah. on that, Paul. Because you know um, how much I like to pick apart a survey. Like, there's nothing better for me in the show. Where I'm like, yeah, it's time to pick apart a survey. Yeah, I and think 63% of all people feel that way. Yes. So 83% <laughs> of all statistics are made up, or something like that. It's not another. How? Did, what's your source on that? Uh, Was it me? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so I, and I hate to pick on the vendors because a lot of times they're vendors that I like, like. Uh, Vericode, CA Vericode, um, which which I do like, and I like the people there because I know the people there, and I like them. I just I I, I just hate surveys and data because right. So it, they produce this survey well, with all this data, right? That they collected from all like their sensors and everything, and they they put together a bunch of statistics, which is all well and good. I'm not questioning that their statistics are aren't accurate. That's not what I'm saying. But they talked about the state of um, software security in that how often people or how long people take to fix a flaw. And so there's lots of numbers there, and it looks really fancy. But when you get to the key takeaways, right, they've got four. Number one, the speed at which developers fix flaws is directly related to the risks the software creates over time. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, with, two, with the volume of flaws that some developers face, it's important to prioritize and address them by severity. Okay. Uh, using DevSecOps development methodology makes it possible to fix flaws more quickly. Okay. Uh, developers need to carefully evaluate their use of vulnerable open source components. Uh, apparently that section great. was written by Captain Obvious. Because uh, <laughs> these are all things right, we talk. Say, all of these, I, yeah. I don't need a survey to tell me that, I, that right. these, these are conclusions that I can draw. And this is, is it just, just me? This is, is almost it? like a clickbait article. <laughs> like It's got all the buzzwords you need yeah. and it conveys no new information. Um, what I found really weird and interesting in this article, though, um, just above that section, actually a couple of sections above, under the application security flaw correction rate, um, in five of the seven, let's see, five, yeah, five yeah. of the seven industries, right? So, save for healthcare and technology, code quality <laughs> was one of the top issues. That's mm -hmm interesting to me sure. especially because healthcare you'd think that code quality would probably still be an issue technology we all know code quality is an issue there um oh. but that for financial government and education manufacturing infrastructure and retail code quality was a, a, one of the top problems i'm i'm not at all surprised by that um 
from having spent years as a penetration tester focusing on uh, a lot of my, I would say the majority of my clients were healthcare and uh, financial. Um, and then just general, you know, technology, just, you know, IT, your pen tester, that's what you come up against. Um, there's so many applications out there that are written by um, low quality, what are we going to call them? Sweatshops, I guess. Application sweatshops. Uh, especially, man, healthcare. How many times, ever, I'm sure everyone watching this show has gone to the doctor, gone to a hospital, you know, snuck around and taken a look at the application they're using and they go, wow, that just that just looks janky. Like, you know, the application where you could tell how bad it is and you could tell exactly where to begin exploiting it just based on like what Looking, it looks like. Yeah. And they're like, that's written in Visual Basic 6. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, it, that's, and, and that's because these, you know, these, these healthcare applications, they're written in VB6, you know, just, you know, speaking just, off the my, cuff. But My question is, how, how did they measure code quality? Because it somewhat, just code quality, the phrase in and of itself is somewhat subjective. It's by weight. Ah, uh -huh. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So they weigh all the code, and then they weigh the bad code versus the good code. Well, and that's no, it's they... just more code means better quality. That's ah, the bottom ah, line. I got gotcha. you. More lines of code means an infinitely <laughs> smaller. That's my major. That, but that's one of my major issues with the with the data. Right. I, well, and I'm sure the report I, probably has better I metrics. Didn't know. And I didn't read the actual report. I just read the report on it. So I guess I'm critiquing. It's, on, it's right there. I'm, th there's <laughs> a link. Yeah, there's a link to the report, it's, which I probably have to register to get a copy of. No, I have Anyway, I, use my I didn't know we were going to just question. I mean, if you're going to get down to like that granular of nitpicking on a study, yeah. I, we I probably can, should read the report. We shouldn't discuss this at all because what do you... Well, you know, I would, you would at least hope that someone like Veracode would have a solid definition of what they consider to be code quality. I'm sure that's like in the report. One job. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't say overall, even if we're talking relative code quality... Uh, the relative code quality of applications I see running on healthcare systems uh, and retail systems, like POSs, mm -hmm. um, any any POS that's still like based on an embedded OS, that software has likely not been updated in five to ten years. POS takes on multiple meetings there. Yeah, definitely yeah. right. <clears throat> Unless it's they're one they're the ones running on the iPads, and then they they're flawless. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's, I, so I worked in retail information security mm. for about five years. Uh, and our point of sale systems ran some ancient, bizarre crap and that had no updates ever put out for it. Uh, but the, and in fact, even before that company. So I'll tell you it. how crappy that code is on your point of sale systems. Yeah. I used to write code that ended up in retail point of systems. <laughs> Oh, point of sale no. systems. Guys, it was Paul's fault. <laughs> I mean, it's this Paul's was fault. this was back in Point. the 90s, though. I mean, <laughs> and yeah. you're laughing because they can't be possibly still in produ are, production today. Are we, are we going back to, like, what was the first program you ever <laughs> yeah. wrote? Did you yeah. write it for an, <laughs> a POS system in the 90s, and it's still running at uh, Best Buy? Yeah, I used um, Logo. To write. <laughs> how many retail stores do you go into, and they're still running some green screens? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I – yeah, I, it, was, it was actually I IBM for – I don't actually – 4690. 4690 was IBM's operating system for yeah. point of sale systems. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with that. I did. At, I don't want to name the don't retailer because yeah, they're sure. still doing it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, I had a good one and I lost it now. Damn it. Oh, um, next time you're in a police department, next time you get arrested, <laughs> uh, look, at this, look at the systems they're using. It's still, you know, terminal-based, um, you know, mainframe back end. And you know that hasn't been updated in... 
you know, since 90, 1994 when it was written. It was right. never updated. Uh, because a lot of those, you paid the company for this software and they gave it to you and mm -hmm. that was it. Um, it was before cloud subscriptions, in other words. It was before cloud. Yeah. Uh, it was when nobody had, a, had the bandwidth to, to make cloud usable. Mm. Um, you, you, pay, you would often pay a company specifically to write this point of sale system software for you or you know what booking system for the police department and you'd get it and that was it and if you needed updates to it if you needed to add functionality you would have to call this company again and pay them more money to mm -hmm. add that functionality um, and there was no security patching there was no security auditing being done in any of this stuff uh, and so given how broke uh, municipalities are and now you know brick and mortar retailers you don't see them paying these companies to get any kind of updates done you don't see them doing security audits uh, the most you see them is doing internal audits and then ho you know trying to write ACLs to just get people from talking to the machines as much as possible. Um, but the, yeah, there's not security's not happening, and yet the software is not going away. You know, you might if you spin up a whole new company, they might buy brand new software by today's standards, mm -hmm. and then in 20 years, it's going to be you know discovered to be riddled with holes. Um, but oh, speaking of software riddled with holes, uh, we've got time for maybe one more story, right? Uh, WordPress team, who also presented at uh, presented at DerbyCon, is working to wipe out older versions from existence on the internet. And by wipe out, I don't mean they're rendering their software useless so that it doesn't work anymore. Mm. They are uh, making automatic updates extend back further into older versions of WordPress to get them up to date. Man, that's really cool. And to be fair, uh, WordPress, especially the newer two-ish major versions of WordPress, two to three major versions, have been really solid. Um, it's the... the if PHP is at seven or greater, right? So like if you're updated on PHP and WordPress, you're in much better shape. Right. And your and plugins aren't yep. complete. Crap. And generally yep. your auto-updaters take care of both of those. Yep. Um, it, the plugins have, have famously been the real problem. Yeah. WordPress itself, the core WordPress, has not had the ocean of critical vulnerabilities that it, that it used to yeah. in years. They've so done a great job. To address job. The, the plugin, the team is working with the most popular WordPress plugins and helping them get their code up to date and more secure. And what they said was, uh, they've got apparently data to back this up, that the other plugins will borrow code heavenly, heavily from the major plugins and they've been borrowing now this more secure code and it's been improving the overall quality of code across the whole plugin infrastructure, which... That is a fantastic idea. A good idea. I, it, it, given the number of plugins that are out there, I question the yeah. impact that that's having. They're up to it nine. It is a step in the right direction, though, right? Yeah. yeah. It's nine is what they're up to? Plugins yeah. or versions? No, nine plugins, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. So how many, yeah. And there's, <laughs> you know, how many millions of plugins out there in any case? At least they're trying. They are. They yeah, are. They're good. clearly trying. They're trying much more than than should be expected, which yeah. is really cool. You know, being like, developing a means of updating third party software. That's nuts. That's awesome. And and I was just going to add as well. It's one of those situations where, especially for companies like WordPress, at some point, like end of life really means end of life, and they're they did talk about you know they're looking at possibly limiting that to some degree uh, of course because this is putting a huge load on their security team to actually go out and, and do updates for these other things but I'm, I'm thinking about the plugin infrastructure for just a moment and thinking back to like the early days of writing websites like you know geocities or angel fire or all those good things i mean how many times did you steal code off of really cool looking sites as well right i'm sure that people are doing the same thing with their plugin environment today absolutely 100 percent. i mean there's there's so many sites that push that um what what's what really the reason this really needs to be commended is that 
WordPress is acknowledging that it has accidentally become part of the internet, like a, a pillar of the internet. It is a core component of mm -hmm. web infrastructure. And they're taking on the moral responsibility that comes with that, even though, well, I mean, I'm sure that was always their hope. You know, what company doesn't want to become a core piece of you know, web infrastructure? But uh, instead of saying like, hey, these security problems aren't our fault. It's all the users. It's all the people who wrote the plugins. There's nothing we can do. They're saying, look, we recognize that, you know, this is sort of our doing. We're going to try to do what we can to correct this. However, be aware it's a massive burden on our security team and WordPress, you know, does, isn't a trillion dollar a year uh, company. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, they run something like 60% of the internet. And I know that yeah. uh, two weeks ago, at least when I was on the show last, um, we were talking about how a, a majority of the internet, uh, you know, especially WordPress, Drupal, et cetera, run on PHP, I think it's like 5.7 or something, which is going end of life, end of this year. So, and, I mean, yeah. Bear in mind, um, end, of, end of life doesn't mean that it disappears and stops working. It just means right. when, you know, the eternal blue equivalent for PHP 5.7 comes out, mm. we've got major panic and i gotta hear, oh, yeah. hear about that on cnn that much of the days. internet like yeah. that that's potentially you know and that, so there's a whole lot of problems what do you think the chances are somebody's just sitting on an o day for that and waiting and, high you know, really six, high six to 12 months after five seven goes end of life they drop an o day and then word you know php goes we don't have time for this i don't know if you've ever watched the php um uh mailing list uh it's not seven thousand contributors it's it's a very tiny amount, and they're focusing very heavily on current stuff. Mm. Um, you know, I, w I I would imagine that definitely if some devastating O day came out for five seven, they would go back and figure out something to do about it. But um, they're going to stop actively looking at five seven, and that's what's important to know. Mm. Yeah, but everyone so else is not. Doom and gloom going right into Halloween. Uh, <laughs> um, Johnny, th thanks for joining us on the show, and of course. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get, commit, and blast.